I was kind of dabbling around in deep learning a little bit. I was just reading papers and read some papers on pruning. Eventually came to this question of just, why can't we train pruned networks? Mm -hmm. They can store the function. So clearly they've got the representation capacity. Mm -hmm. But the paper seemed to say we couldn't train them. And I was just like, why can't we do that? I had this really formative conversation with a professor at MIT. I happened to ask him about this pruning question, and he gave me an answer. I don't remember exactly what the answer was, something about how maybe the model memorizes first and then compresses that representation over time, kind of an information bottleneck view of the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, A, this sounds kind of silly. But B, this is a hypothesis. I thought, what if we just were scientists about it? and you know, actually evaluated this claim. Mm-hmm. What are all the other hypotheses for why you couldn't train a prudent network? Mm-hmm. What became the lottery ticket idea that maybe initialization matters? The original initialization selected which weights eventually became important. Mm-hmm. That seemed valuable because you can just train the network and go back and ask the question, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, let me go and do this. What if you train that network, pick some heuristic for which neurons are important, like you know something about the weights going in and the weights going out. It was very naive at the time. Mm-hmm. And prune two neurons and then set everything else back to its initialization and train again. Mm-hmm. And then do that again and do that until you've got two neurons left. Mm-hmm. And that got the right decision boundary 80% of the time once you were down to two neurons versus 20% without. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, I got this. Hey there, I'm your host, Kan June, and we are Generally Intelligent an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. You have a really unusual and interesting background. What is the story of how you developed your initial research interests from Princeton through MIT, and how have those interests evolved over time? That's a great question, and it's one that I've had to try to turn into a coherent story for the faculty market. (laughs) But to be completely honest, I wouldn't describe the story as coherent. Mm -hmm. There are kind of a couple of recurring themes, though, and I think one of them is that In computer science, we love things to be very neat and clean. And I'm a computer scientist by training. Mm -hmm. I've realized recently that perhaps not all people in machine learning are computer scientists. And, you know, it's been a rude awakening for me. (laughs) But I'm a computer scientist by training. And we like the world to be very neat and simple. We like to either have theorems that show properties of systems or build systems that have properties. Those are the two things that we do for the world. Mm -hmm. And if you want to claim a system has a property, you prove it and then you're done. And if you want to have a new property, you build a system that does it and then you prove that it does it. So in that respect, you know, we're very simple creatures. We like the world to be imperfect ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. And I think, honestly, a traditional machine learning person is very similar in that respect, Mm -hmm. just without the systems. Mm -hmm. We like to prove that things have properties. And historically, those systems sometimes did things and sometimes didn't do things. Mm -hmm. But it's a very similar mentality in that respect. Machine learning people, mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered over the years that actually the problems that I like most are the ones that are messy and complicated and have no answers and will never have answers. Because those are the hardest problems. Those are the most interesting ones. And those are the ones that you can always keep coming back to and there's something new there. So, you know, to actually put this in story form, I did my undergrad and master's at Princeton. And I did a master's in programming language theory, which is kind of the neatest of the neat of computer science. And I think my reaction to it was that it was too neat for me, to be honest. I wanted things to be a little bit more complicated. And 
I took a year off afterward. There's a whole complicated story there we can dig into, but I took a year off afterward and found my way to Georgetown Law, mm-hmm. where I worked on technology policy for a year. I'm a DC native, so you know mm-hmm. we don't have good sports teams, but we do have <laughs> politics and policy, and those are our local sports. Mm-hmm. My mom was in government for a long time, so I'm familiar with the space. And Georgetown Law gave me the chance, as they put it, to learn how DC works and to make an impact by being the most qualified computer scientist on that campus by virtue of the fact the law campus is a long drive away from the main campus where the computer science department is. So I got to be the voice of technology. I got to, you know, work on technology policy projects and be the one who read the papers and tried to understand the technology. I eventually got to teach law students a class about coding for lawyers that I co-created with Professor Paul Ohm there. It's now in its sixth year there, and it's taught at a bunch of other law schools. We're writing a book, mm-hmm. like the weirdest misadventure ever. Wow. But the claim to fame is that I had the title of adjunct professor of law at 23 with, I'll be honest, no knowledge of the law. <laughs> when you do the icebreaker where you need a fun fact about yourself, I am set for life. <laughs> And I will say that my dad is an attorney and my mom is an attorney. They've mm-hmm. both largely told me that I can't go to law school and shouldn't go to law school mm-hmm. for the reason that they're both lawyers. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't end around. My dad went to Georgetown for his law school. Mm-hmm. And so I never became a lawyer, but I became a law professor <laughs> at his alma mater, <laughs> despite that. So, But I will say that experience was so formative, not only in learning the role that technology can play in society and being on the receiving end of that, Mm -hmm. as opposed to on the throwing end of that. But also these are messy problems. These have no solutions. Mm -hmm. And in policy, we have to make the best with what we have. Mm -hmm. We have to try to find our way forward and improve the situation and improve toward our goals. There's no such thing as an ideal. And even what we might consider an ideal is probably practically unrealistic, Mm -hmm. but we need to find ways to make progress toward that regardless. Mm -hmm. And the law is messy. Mm-hmm. The law is messy by design. The whole point is that things should be vague and interpretable mm-hmm. so that we can adapt to new circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it was just an incredible experience to work with law students who, despite the fact that people always say to me, well, aren't they good at programming because they do logic? And the answer is lawyers love the shades of gray. Mm-hmm. A lot of things are black and white. Most Supreme Court cases are nine to zero. Mm-hmm. It's the messy gray areas, which are the ones that are most interesting to a lawyer. That's really interesting. Did you have? research or subject area interests during that period of time? I worked on police use of facial recognition, Mm. which I say this to you now and you say, oh, AI. This was back in 2015. And Mm. so if you roll back the clock to 2015 and we can do that, you know, if I remember it, there was no such thing as TensorFlow. Mm. Google Brain was not called Google Brain at that point. Mm. You know, iClear was in like its second year. Mm -hmm. The policy community was really concerned about surveillance. These were the post-Snowden years. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This was a government surveillance project. At least that's how we conceived it. I see. In hindsight, this is an AI project, mm-hmm. but we didn't think of it that way at the time. Mm-hmm. By the time it came out, you know, a year later in 2016, the whole world had pivoted toward AI and bias and fairness. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of, I think in some ways, one of the instigators of that. We pointed out that there had been some historic concern in the early 2000s about bias and facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Folks like Joy Bolomini, who have worked on gender shade since then, blew that door open by doing the technical research that showed it was a huge problem today. We wrote a little bit about how it might be a problem. And help to get the conversation started on that. But again, we didn't really recognize at the time, I think, that this was the beginning of policy being concerned about AI. Mm. And we didn't think of this as an AI issue. But my big takeaway was machine learning was probably going to be important and I needed to learn what that was. Mm -hmm. That was really my motivation for eventually going back to grad school, Mm. heading off to MIT. This is a topic that I knew I needed to learn more about if I wanted to be useful to the policy community. And you realized during this time at the law school, you didn't go into law school thinking you wanted to go to grad school. It's a longer story. I was supposed to go to grad school that year and decided it was better to take a year off. Mm -hmm. 
grad school was kind of always there lurking in the background, but I didn't really know whether I was going to go back. But even in that one year, my reaction was, I'm already no longer on the cutting edge mm. because technology has changed and I'm not in a position to change with it. Mm, wow. And so I recognized, oh, I, I guess I need to be in grad school. And, you know, one meta lesson that I'll put out for all the folks who are interested in both policy and technology. And it's a question that I get a lot from undergrads and early stage grad students who reach out and ask, you know, how can I do both? Mm. The answer is it's really hard. Mm. You kind of have to choose where your home is. There's not really a home for people who live on the boundary. If you want to be the technical person who works in policy, you want to stay on the cutting edge and your home may have to be in computer science. Mm -hmm. If you want to really live in that policy world most of your time, you're going to be in policy, but you need to recognize that your technical edge will dull a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's inevitable just because the field changes so quickly. Mm -hmm. And unless it's your full-time job to keep up, it's really hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And that was my lesson. I felt like I was not on the right side for my skill set. Mm -hmm. And so going back to school was the right way to be back on the side where I could be useful to policy, but probably could never fully live in that world 100% of my time. That makes sense. But it's really tough for some folks because sometimes you want to hope that there will be a world where you can really do both. And I don't think right now the jobs or the career paths or really the world's conception of the field is such that one can pull that off. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. We're getting closer, but it's happening slowly. Yeah, it seems really important actually to be able to blend the two mm-hmm. in, a, in an easier way and have a career path toward it. That is one stage of my very complicated career. But I went back to grad school and, you know, interested in policy, needed to learn some machine learning, but really focused on security and privacy, which were the big interface between technology policy and computer science. Mm-hmm. I worked on that and honestly struggled with it and wasn't very good at it. Mm. And I'll fully admit that. Like cryptography tends to pull you toward theory mm. and pull you toward doing proofs and to pull you toward making things clean. Mm. That's not where my inclination is. I can do enough math to keep up. But I'm not going to win any prizes for my theory work or my mathematical papers. And for all those who may be around who feel that way, you can totally be a successful ML researcher without being the world's greatest mathematician. But often we feel very inadequate reading a theory paper because we aren't. I don't know. I've read theory papers I understand very well. It's usually because they're well-written and most papers in general aren't well-written. I'm sure a theory person would feel that way about a bad empirical paper as well. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people feel very inadequate, feel like they need to go off and take 10 math classes. Mm -hmm. It certainly wouldn't hurt to, but you can be a great researcher without being the world's greatest mathematician. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people, including me, forget that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then how did your interest shift after I was kind of dabbling around in deep learning a little bit, you know, because it's a cool topic, playing around with some deep learning and cryptography Mm -hmm. stuff that didn't go anywhere and was a complete mess, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I I was just reading papers and read some papers on pruning and some other ideas were in my mind at the time Mm -hmm. and eventually came to this question of just, why can't we train pruned networks? Mm -hmm. Like why Mm -hmm. they can store the function. (laughs) So clearly they've got the representation capacity. Mm But the paper seemed to say we couldn't train them. And I was just like, why can't we do that? And I had this really formative conversation. And, you know, sometimes you have those important conversations and you only notice in hindsight Mm -hmm. with a professor at MIT who I'll leave nameless first to discuss what I was working on in cryptography and machine learning. And he was basically kind enough to say, this is crap. Don't waste your time. (laughs) I wanted to cry at the time. In hindsight, I'm kind of grateful. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a fine line there. Yeah. 
And eventually I got to the point where I was just spitballing questions for him because I wanted something to work on. Mm -hmm. I came very close to dropping out of grad school at that point wow. because I was toward the middle of my second year. I was on the cusp because I didn't feel like I was accomplishing anything. I didn't feel like I was doing well mm -hmm. or getting anything done. I didn't feel happy. Mm -hmm. And I happened to ask him about this pruning question and he gave me an answer. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what the answer was. Something about how maybe the model memorizes first and then compresses that representation over time. Mm -hmm. Kind of an information bottleneck view of the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, A, this sounds kind of silly. But B, this is a hypothesis, and this whole darned literature is full of these stupid hypotheses that people make and never evaluate, <laughs> never do any science. You read the batch norm paper, and it's like internal covariate shift. That dead horse has been beaten to death at this point. Back when I was asking this question, I guess this must have been in late 2017, people hadn't beaten that dead horse yet. It was still kind of just a thing that people thought, oh yeah, this is a thing, flat minimum theory. It's a nice claim. Figure out a way to rigorously evaluate it and we'll talk. <laughs> but you name it and just papers are littered with folklore. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the first to say this and I certainly won't be the last, but papers are littered. And I thought, what if we just were scientists about it and you know, actually evaluated this claim? Mm -hmm. What are all the other hypotheses for why you couldn't train a prudent network? Mm -hmm. And one of them was maybe it's about initialization. Mm -hmm. I tried it. I thought, how do you evaluate that hypothesis? It's hard to evaluate this memorization and then mm -hmm. compression thing. Like mm -hmm. that is just difficult. Mm -hmm. But I mean, maybe you could do something with random labels. Maybe in my wisdom, several years later, I might be able to figure out something. Mm -hmm. But for now, what became the lottery ticket idea that maybe initialization matters? The original initialization selected which weights eventually became important. Mm -hmm. That seemed valuable because you can just train the network and go back and ask the question, what would have happened? Mm -hmm. It's something you could never do to a lab rat. You couldn't teach it and then take it back in time and knock out a bunch of grants <laughs> and see what happens. One of the beautiful things about machine learning is we can do things that would be totally unethical if these were real. Yeah. And you know, if we ever get to an AGI point, I don't want to be the one on the IRB to have to figure out what to do with that. So I'm really, in some sense, I'm enjoying the fact that we don't have to worry about this right now. Mm -hmm. But you know, we could do this. And so I thought, okay, let me go and do this. For those who have looked at the archive V1 of this paper, mm -hmm. I thought, well, neural networks, what do I know about them? They can do XOR. So I did this on XOR. Mm -hmm. And for other reasons, I had been struggling in this cryptography area, getting networks to just learn XOR. Interesting. And so I tried taking a network that had the minimum capacity necessary to learn XOR, mm -hmm. gave it a reasonable initialization, gave it you know, a reasonable optimization regime. I, in hindsight, I don't know if those were good hyperparameters, but it seemed reasonable. Mm -hmm. And then I tried training it 100 times from random initializations to completion mm -hmm. and logged the number of times it found the right decision boundary to get a hard zero or one output on mm -hmm. these four data points for exclusive order. Mm -hmm. And it was about 20% of the time it got there, mm -hmm. which seemed really low. Like this network can represent the function. Why isn't it learning? Mm -hmm. it? And then I tried adding neurons. If you go up to 10 neurons, 99% of the time it'll get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I tried what became the lottery ticket experiment. I tried, what if you train that network, pick some heuristic for which neurons are important, like you know something about the weights going in and the weights going out. It was very naive at the time. Mm -hmm. And prune two neurons and then set everything else back to its initialization and train again. Mm -hmm. And then do that again and do that until you've got two neurons left. Mm -hmm. And that got the right decision boundary 80% of the time once you were down to two neurons versus 20% without. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh man, I got this. <laughs> And then I put it away because I had a cryptography paper that I wanted to put <laughs> and put it away for, I want to say two months. Wow. wow. Came back to it later when I was finally done with this mm -hmm. and tried it on MNIST and it didn't work. Mm. Mm. And I, I put it away again for a little while, like uh, maybe a week or two, mm -hmm. came back to it and realized there were bugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually setting back to the right initialization because I didn't know how to use TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. Someone had to teach me what MNIST was because I hadn't really interacted with it before. Mm -hmm. And then... 
that started working. Mm. And the person who became my advisor, Michael Carbon, at some point with the XOR experiments, I think it may have been registration day that spring, I sent him this two-page manuscript called The Lottery Ticket Hypothesis. It was called that from the beginning. Mm. That was the name of the hypothesis on the list. Wow. And he looked at it and he went, oh, I think we can work with this. <laughs> and it was the complete madman ravings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the MNIST stuff started working. He was like, okay, uh, time to, you know, make this happen. Mm-hmm. And so I buckled down for a few weeks and made it happen and got it onto archive just so I knew that it was out there and I could say that I was first because it seemed like a really simple idea that anybody should come up with. It seems very obvious. Mm-hmm. I had to do this huge lit review just to make sure it hadn't been done. Because <laughs> yeah. it's Again, it's a really obvious idea in a lot of ways if you think about the problem a certain way. I mean, this is a fear we all have with research and I've got a lot more to say about that at some point about getting scooped and what that's like or how you manage it. But we got it out there and I'm glad people liked it. Mm-hmm. And... I had to make a decision if this was my way forward, if I wanted to keep being a cryptographer. And I decided, you know, I had fun. Mm-hmm. Let me just go with whatever's fun right now and decided not to leave MIT. In some ways, the rest is history, although there were a lot more downs along the way. Don't you worry. <laughs> it's really interesting that you automatically came to this, oh, I'm going to start with a super small network that I can fully understand and try to get it to learn Explorer. Oh, that wasn't a choice. That was complete ignorance. If I had known what CIFAR 10 was at the time, I probably would have done that. Mm-hmm. And if I had had access to any GPUs, I probably would have done that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the criticism of the original lottery ticket paper is there are no large-scale experiments. Mm. So I have two things to say about that, one of which is I wrote that whole paper on at most 4K80s, mm-hmm. and that was all I could manage to get my hands on at MIT. I got kicked mm-hmm. off of the vision cluster for using too many GPUs. <laughs> there was a lot of other stuff that went wrong there. I had no resources, mm-hmm. and it's been a big crusade of mine, at least in academia, to make sure that there are pools of resources available to everyone. They don't have to be big. You don't need a lot of them, but just, you know, some spare GPU cycles on a cluster, mm-hmm. making sure they're available campus-wide because who knows who's going to have an interesting idea and try it out. Like yeah. I was just a random person who lightning hit, <laughs> you know, it could have been anybody. And I had to really struggle to get enough resources. Mm-hmm. It was a nightmare. And once I got the paper out and with the MIT name, resources started coming my way slowly. Mm-hmm. And I had to keep advocating and fighting and pushing and find them. Mm-hmm. And it's been an up and down battle. You know, thanks to IBM and to Google who have provided the resources. Mm-hmm. It was tough and it slowed down the work a lot and mm-hmm. probably took months longer than it would have otherwise just mm-hmm. for that reason. But the other thing about starting small, there are two views on that. One is that we may not be able to take the paper as seriously as we should because there are no ImageNet experiments. And in fact, the results fall apart if you do this on ImageNet. Mm. By the end of the paper, they were already falling apart. That last section, they don't work on even what I would call normal networks for CIFAR 10. Mm. I'm not sure if I reviewed this paper, if I would accept it, to be honest, given that I look at my own reviews. Mm. But in hindsight, one thing I've realized is, suppose I had started on ImageNet. Mm. I would have said negative result and quit. Mm -hmm. That's true. The fact that I started on something small enough where it was permissive, Mm -hmm. obviously MNIST is not sufficient, but working on MNIST can give you a sense that maybe something might have some legs and then the idea may need to be adapted or may need to become more nuanced to work on something bigger. Mm -hmm. But usually we'll see things in simpler forms on these smaller networks and maybe they won't show up at all or maybe we just need to understand how they change on larger scale settings. Mm -hmm. And so I try to practice that. I do most of my research on CIFAR 10 these days. Mm -hmm. MNIST is a little bit small for what I do now, but I only go to ImageNet at the end Mm -hmm. because ImageNet is more complicated. It's harder. There's just a lot more that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And often things do work, but you have to figure out what changes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. A lot of lessons there. Do you want to talk more about the paper? It'd be interesting to hear like, you know, how has that held up and expanded and how have your views grown on it or become more nuanced over time as well? Mm-hmm. Definitely. The high level idea of the paper is 
Neural network pruning is the idea of just removing weights from the network, typically after training or during training, with the goal of reducing the size of the network for inference. There are a lot of different ways of pruning. I focused on pruning individual connections or weights from the network. That tends to be kind of what will get you the best results and scientifically is the most interesting to me. Mm -hmm. There's a long history of pruning individual weights from the network and preserving accuracy even when you remove, say, 90% of the parameters. This goes back to before I was born. Mm -hmm. This goes back to the late 80s. So I did not invent the concept of pruning. And if you ever put that in your paper, you're wrong. Don't cite me for that. Pruning seems to only work after training, or at least that was the conception back in 2015 or so. Mm -hmm. There was some great work where people had asked the same question. They had said, well, can't we just take the smaller architecture we had, mm. randomly initialize it and use it as our architecture? It can represent. So why can't it learn? Mm -hmm. And you get worse performance when you do this. Mm -hmm. And so the belief was, well, maybe then something about the optimization process requires more capacity than the final representation. Mm -hmm. That hypothesis I gave you before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My results said, actually, it may be a little more complicated than that. So what I did is I asked the question, what if each of those weights that survived pruning, what if it had a really lucky initial value such that it became important? Mm -hmm. And maybe initialization is kind of a lottery. And you're sampling subnetworks. And SGD latches onto one of those subnetworks and leads it to a good place. And everything else kind of falls away and is useless. Mm -hmm. And by the end, you can prune that stuff. Mm -hmm. You can test this. This is a hypothesis. What's an experiment that would falsify it very quickly? train the network to completion, prune it, take that pruned architecture and set each weight back to its original initialization. My claim is that if you do this and you train, you'll get good accuracy, perhaps the same accuracy as the pruned network after training. And you know, if that doesn't happen, well, there goes my hypothesis. And I tried this and this works, at least on MNIST and other small scale settings. Mm -hmm. You can find subnetworks that are just as small as you would get from pruning after training. Mm -hmm. They existed at the beginning of training. You can train them to completion and get the same accuracy. Mm -hmm. Now, the caveat is, I don't know how to find these networks at the beginning. Remember <laughs> that we have to train the whole network first, often many times to get this. I'm not promising you a magic button that you can push to make your network smaller from the start mm -hmm. yet. And this is a research question I hope my work has inspired people to ask. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's impossible necessarily. Mm -hmm. And people are now working on this. Mm -hmm. But it's a question you wouldn't think was worth asking mm -hmm. if you didn't see these results. Mm -hmm. And so I hope to open the door to this possibility. Mm -hmm. I keep mentioning this doesn't work on large-scale networks. Mm -hmm. Let me say more about that, mm -hmm. which is that if you prune at the end of training, it doesn't tell you a subnetwork that you could have trained from the beginning to the end and gotten to the same accuracy. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that such a subnetwork doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It may just mean that pruning at the end of training is a really dumb way to find it. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it's a pretty simplistic way to go about, like, why should what has a big magnitude at the end tell you what was crucially important at the beginning? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make that much sense. Mm -hmm. So perhaps there's a better strategy out there. And this is a question I think is understudied in the lottery ticket literature. Mm -hmm. Can we have better ways of finding lottery tickets? Mm -hmm. And that was the first dumb thing I tried when I didn't even know what CIFAR 10 was at the time. Mm -hmm. like, come on, I'm sure we can do better. <laughs> this doesn't work on settings like ImageNet. Mm -hmm. What does seem to work is if you set the weights back to their values from an iteration very early in training. Mm, interesting. You can take a lot of things away from this. This may suggest that there are limitations to when you can prune a network, and maybe we could never have pruned early in training. Maybe, again, this is just a limitation of the method mm -hmm. and signal from early in training. The weights at the end of training only represent signal from early in training, and some other process is happening early on that obfuscates, or you don't get any signal from initialization, mm -hmm. and maybe you need some other way of pruning at a different time in training to figure out what that good subnetwork would have been. But you know, as far as we know, subnetworks don't exist at initialization for these large scale networks that can train 
to completion on their own. Mm-hmm. But early in training can be great. If you could prune then, you'd still at least reduce the number of flops necessary to train the network by like 80% or something like that yeah, totally. on ImageNet. That would be amazing. So yeah, it's a start. That's interesting. When you say early in training, is it like 10% of the way through, 20%? On CIFAR 10, it was about 1%. Oh, wow. On right. ImageNet, it was 4 or 5%. I see. So this is really early. And I'm guessing there are ways of probably getting a little bit earlier if you really fight with it and do things like warm up at the beginning of training mm-hmm. and other things that are a little bit gentler to the network and don't create a lot of chaos in the optimization landscape. Mm-hmm. It's quite early in training. If you could pull this off, it would be pretty great. Mm-hmm. One thing you said was potentially there's something else happening very, very early on in the training. Did you investigate any of these open questions of, is there something different going on or? I have a couple of papers about this. It's as if you've, you've looked at my work maybe and, and know exactly the right questions to ask. <laughs> How amazing. <laughs> so this really tells us two things. First, it indicates that training may be happening in a couple of phases. Mm. These phases probably aren't like, you know, you get to 5% of the way through training and everything changes. There's probably a gradual transition, mm. but you could probably identify close to the beginning and 10% of the way through training, maybe, or 20%, mm-hmm. probably two distinct phases. I'm definitely not the first person to say that. Mm-hmm. And there are at least a dozen papers showing different phenomena that happen early on versus later in training. Mm-hmm. So this kind of adds to that body of work. But I think we're getting a pretty good sense for that. But I'll say one more thing, and this is probably the most complicated thing I expect to have to say now or have had to say ever, which is that there's this interesting property of the networks as soon as they start doing well. Mm-hmm which is that they always find the same local optimum, no matter what data order you use. When we think about stochastic gradient descent, what's stochastic about it? Why do we even call it that? It's that you're sampling mini batches in a random order during each epoch. Mm-hmm. And from run to run, the ordering of the data may be different and the composition of the mini batches may be different, mm-hmm. such that in the end, you'll end up with different networks. These networks may be very similar to each other. They could be very different. How do we even come to describe that? Mm-hmm. There's a whole literature on this. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that even from the same initialization with the same hyperparameters, due to just the randomness of SGD, you'll end up with two different networks. In the paper, we looked at supposing you freeze the state of the network at some iteration K Mm -hmm. and then train two copies from there with different data orders. Mm -hmm. So you get two different networks again, Mm -hmm. but they both started from the same shared point in training. Mm -hmm. How similar are they? And this magical thing happens where before lottery ticket starts working. So if you create these networks at like, I don't know, 1% of the way through training for ImageNet, they'll find optima that are not linearly connected. They won't land in the same convex region of the lost landscape. Interesting. As soon as your accuracy of these subnetworks starts improving to the point where they match full accuracy, mm-hmm. suddenly they start finding the same convex optima. You can look at this a lot of different ways. Maybe these sparse networks are just much more sensitive to SGD noise, Mm -hmm. and they're much more likely to get thrown off course and stuck in some bad part of the landscape. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of help them along, if you give them some dense training for the Mm -hmm. first 5%, Mm -hmm. you'll put them kind of in a nice groove where they can optimize all the way to the optimum and are basically unlikely to to jump out of that groove and land somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And you can be pessimistic and say, well, we can't find sparse networks until you've already kind of gotten them to the cusp of the optimum. Or we can say, oh, cool, all we need to do is get them to the cusp of the optimum, and then we can sparsify. Mm-hmm. Turns out that these networks travel a very long way once you get them to the cusp of the optimum. Mm-hmm. It's not like the path is clean and convex and linear. There are barriers and the networks have to navigate. Mm-hmm. You can check throughout training. They follow the same path all the way to this optimum. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. This has become a little topic in its own on what's called linear mode connectivity, which is part of a much bigger literature on mode connectivity. And I can talk your ear off about that, but 
that's a whole other topic. Mm. But it was really cool to connect the lottery ticket results to the nature of the networks in the lost landscape mm-hmm. and gives you kind of a lot of ideas about where to take this further and how to determine which parts of the network are important. Mm-hmm. And so what did you explore next? Next, I explored trying to get a job. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, in the last year or so, the paper was published in ICML of 2020. Mm-hmm. And in the last year or so, I've been eagerly trying to get a job. <laughs> okay, that totally makes sense. I've been doing a little bit of work. I'm really interested in you know developing techniques for pruning early on. Mm-hmm. And I've been dabbling in that area, although dabbling much more in trying to have employment. Mm-hmm. So I haven't made it that far. But in the process of doing so, there are a lot of methods that have been proposed in the literature over the past few years mm-hmm. that claim they can prune networks at initialization and do really well. They have a nice long proof that justifies why this is a good technique. Mm-hmm. And I started trying to implement these techniques as baselines for my research mm-hmm. and found a lot of weird things. Like they didn't seem to work that well, all things considered. In some cases, I couldn't figure out there was one technique, couldn't figure out whether you were supposed to prune the weights that had the highest scores or the lowest scores. And the problem was that I was getting the same results no matter what I did. <laughs> and so this is, you know, this is a serious thing. Like the, this is a technique that's published in the literature and some people worked really hard on it. Mm-hmm. But I'm concerned that the literature in some sense were claiming victory in an unjustified way. Mm-hmm. We're not doing good science, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, we're not running the appropriate baselines. Mm-hmm. We're cherry picking settings or we're cherry picking sparsities to claim victory mm-hmm. where we can. And the pruning literature is rife with this. Every pruning paper that's come out in the past 20 years claims state of the art. And that can't possibly be true. Mm-hmm. And I've worked on survey papers where we look at this. The results are incomparable between papers because people pick their own sparsity where their technique looks best. And one of the findings we had in the paper was for any technique, you could find a network and a data set where you could claim your technique was the best. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. We need a little more rigor. And mm-hmm. I think the other part is this is really basic philosophy of science in some sense. Yeah. We should try to falsify our own claims. Yes. If your claim is that this technique works because of this math, let's try to do some things that don't follow from the math to the technique and see if it still works. Mm-hmm. For example, let's take the weights that you've pruned and randomly prune the same number of weights in each layer of the network mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. And you get the same results. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which means that any technique that makes a claim about pruning the right weight because of some special property of the weight, well, it seems like it's indistinguishable from a technique that doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. If you can invert the technique, if you can prune the opposite of what the technique says to prune and do just as well, then perhaps those important scores aren't the right ones. Yeah. yeah. I think we have a scientific crisis a little bit in the pruning literature, and that's stating the obvious for anyone who's worked in pruning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in general, I think we have a crisis of science and machine learning where you know, our goal is to get a paper mm-hmm. published, and that means pulling the wool over the eyes of the reviewers, not doing the rigorous science to try to break our own ideas. Mm-hmm. And we punish people who do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. The lottery ticket paper, it has some issues at the end, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, the reviewers were able to see the benefits of the paper and not the problems. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would have been so generous as a reviewer. Mm-hmm. And I think most reviewers these days wouldn't have been so generous. The paper got rejected from NeurIPS before it got into iClear, largely on that basis. Mm-hmm. Perhaps rightly so, but perhaps we should be a little more open to the fact that papers don't have to be perfect mm-hmm. to have really important ideas. Mm-hmm. And we should be open to the fact that people can say what's wrong with their ideas. You can have a limitation section in a paper without worrying that that will become the con section of the review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easier said than done. But I know. Yeah. Easier said and then not as easily done as a reviewer. What do you feel like are some of the most important open questions to you at the moment? Within my own area, and I'll only speak to my own area because deep learning is such a huge field these days that I'd be ignorant speaking about anybody else's. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a few. First is, can we find these sparse networks at the beginning of training? I think that's an open question. Mm -hmm. And both 
can we find them retroactively at the beginning of training mm-hmm. and can we find them efficiently? Mm-hmm. And if not early in training, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can we develop pruning techniques that work early in training? Initialization is ambitious. Let's start with halfway through training. Mm-hmm. Let's start with, you know, a quarter of the way through training and work our way there. Any of those would still be really useful. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of exciting work on dynamic sparsity. I'll give a shout out to some of my colleagues at Google who have thought a lot about this question. And they're working on techniques for changing the sparsity pattern over time. Mm-hmm. I've got some work in progress on that subject that I'm interested in sharing as well, where I've tried to bring kind of a scientific edge to that literature. Mm-hmm. It's still early days because job market, but expect more on that hopefully later in the summer and maybe in a dissertation someday. Mm-hmm. I think this is a problem that's really exciting, but also where my take will be that we're already getting promising results, despite the fact that I don't think things are working very well. Yeah. I'll have more to say on what that means soon. Mm-hmm. So suppose we did get things to work really well. Mm -hmm. This is a huge opportunity, and I think we haven't even begun to realize it yet. And yet we're already getting promising results. Mm -hmm. The other big question I'd want to ask is, are sparse networks actually hard to train? Mm. Or are they hard to train with the methods that we use to train dense networks? Mm. That is to say, if you had whispered in Jan LeCun's ear back in the 80s, train sparse, train sparse. Would we have evolved a set of architectures, initializations, and optimizers that worked great for a sparse network from any initialization you sampled from the distribution? We're in such a local optimum where we have five architectures that work really well if you get the hyperparameters just right and it's two-step. Yes. <laughs> and that's great. Like These things work really well. ResNet is super robust. Mm-hmm. You train it on ImageNet, you get 76.1% accuracy 10 times out of 10. Mm-hmm. And the time you don't, maybe you get like 762 mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But in some sense, perhaps we've locked ourselves into a really tiny part of the space and we're going to have to break out of it for new kinds of problems. I look at graph neural networks as a cool example of this, where they work reasonably well. I don't think we found our CNN of graph neural networks yet. Mm -hmm. I don't think we found our transformer of graph neural networks. And it's a space where things are messy and we don't really know what the right direction is yet. And things work pretty well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we should be more willing to embrace that kind of messiness. Mm -hmm. For sparsity, this is a great setting where it's a cool scientific problem to ask, is optimization hard or is it just that we're using methods that weren't designed for this kind of problem? Mm -hmm. Interesting. What are sort of your intuitions, unsounded ones, about which way do you think it goes? Or no idea. Oh, I have no idea. That's why we do the experiment. That's why we ask the questions. That's why they play the game. You go and you find out. Sparsity has been a huge topic in machine learning. It's always been a huge topic. Back before I was born again, you know, I didn't invent this. Mm -hmm. This is, in some sense, a new aspect of an old problem. Mm -hmm. And maybe it has connections to the old problem. Maybe it's just in the same topic, and we can learn something by taking ideas from that Mm -hmm. and moving it to this. Mm -hmm. This is a big problem in machine learning, and it's one where we're seeing it manifest in a whole different, complicated, messy setting that we don't understand anything about. Mm -hmm. So it's a great problem to work on, and I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It may have practical implications. I'm not going to claim to you that anybody should be doing lottery ticket to change the way they do things now. But that doesn't mean that this isn't the beginning of a journey that will lead us to the way that we're going to scale these things up another 10x. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Or the way that we should redesign all our hardware to accelerate sparsity. It's already happening. The mm-hmm. A100s have sparse tensor cores. Mm-hmm. GraphCore and Cerebras both have support for sparsity natively. The folks who have to make five-year decisions or 10-year decisions about their chips see where the wind is blowing. And mm-hmm. we've got some good science to do before we can even start to do the practical stuff. Mm-hmm. 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 Both those things have to happen at the same time, right? Like if you don't have any support for sparsity and the hardware, then people are a little bit less excited about going down this direction because, oh, do we really save anything? I don't know. Once it becomes a little more practical, it's like, well, yeah, we can save, you know, 99% of our power. Oh, okay, great. Like now, now we're talking about something that is meaningful to a lot of people in, in industry even. 
where we'll be like, oh, let's figure out and get this thing actually working. I'm glad to see the hardware moving a little bit more toward that, at least. I'm definitely a fan of the, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. If you show that there is some massive algorithmic improvement that you can get Mm -hmm. in some respect, I mean, maybe it's 5X or 10X or what have you, that you could have gotten if only you had the right chip. Mm -hmm. You know, there's enough money sloshing around right now and enough brilliant hardware architects running around right now. Somebody's going to make that happen. Somebody's going to realize that opportunity. Mm -hmm. You have to take a five to 10 year view and not a one to two year view. Mm -hmm. And the field pushes us so hard to take a three month view. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do for the next deadline? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sometimes it's hard to pursue those longer term visions or to just keep that in mind and recognize even if I don't know anything about architecture, I'm not the one who's going to build that chip. Mm -hmm. But if I do a really good job in my work, I'm going to have great collaborators or great colleagues or someone's going to found a startup and go off and do that. And it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. It's going to be good for the world. Yeah. It's hard to have that time frame when you're trying to finish a master's or trying to finish a paper or just trying to, as I did, survive in a PhD where I thought about leaving after a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done. And I'm in a privileged position where I can think that way right now. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier about not everything was roses after you found an idea that worked a little bit. Do you want to speak a little bit more about some of those other things that may have been a little more challenging? Oh, yeah. I mean, the idea worked and that was great, but it was the most stressful year of my life. (laughs) The fear of being scooped, the fear that someone's going to do it better Mm -hmm. before I even had a publishable version, the fear that someone's going to come along with a lot more resources Mm -hmm. and do the large-scale stuff that I couldn't do Mm -hmm. and blow me out of the water. Mm -hmm. The fear that this plan that I had for a dissertation based on this was going to get scooped by a community that was excited about the work. And it did. None of the papers I wrote in that plan, I wrote, but other people did because, you know, (laughs) they were pretty obvious ideas and someone smarter with more resources than me got to it first. Just the fear of rejection, the fear of getting criticism Mm. and not even fear the reality. Mm. The paper got rejected from NeurIPS and one of the reviews, maybe I'll track down and share these reviews at some point, said, this is yet more folklore added to the deep learning literature. Wow. And, you know, at the time it was a more mediocre version of the paper and Mm. I don't blame them, but... That one hurt Ouch. a lot. Mm-hmm. And as reviewers, we need to remember that there are some people on the other side of this who may be shooting their last shot on a PhD that they may have emotionally given up on. And it can be rough. It, like this can be really, really tough on folks. And going through the iClear process with open review, and that was the last time that open review was kept open basically for three months for any comment. Open review was a nightmare. I sat there in fear every night that someone was going to come along with a comment telling me that my work sucked or come along with a comment telling me that they had done what I did five years ago or come along telling me that they had done the same thing, but better. Mm. And someone did. Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. Someone did. Come, you can look at the open review comments. Someone on another paper came by and said, hey, nice paper, but we did it better. And we did it at initialization. This was the same time that SNP, one of the techniques for pruning and initialization was also proposed concurrently. Mm-hmm. And... That was a nightmare of a week. I don't know if they did it intentionally or not, but they did it on the day before the comment period closed. Oh, wow. So I had no time to respond or run experiments. Thankfully, iClear and their infinite wisdom didn't actually close the comments, and so I could keep responding. <laughs> and eventually I tested out SNP and found that actually the results were not as good as what I was getting and mm-hmm. that you could do the random shuffling per layer, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. That was actually the seed of the paper I came back to a couple of years later. Uh, but that was a devastating day for me. Uh, because they basically came along and said, we've done all that you've done and we've done it better. So, you know, what are you good for? At least that's how I read it in my mind. It's not what they said. They were very polite. (laughs) I thought it was kind of rude to come and post it on my paper on the day before and my paper wouldn't be valued on its own merits at that point. Mm. Thankfully, the paper got in and the reviewers again still saw the value in it. That was miserable. I felt like a year's worth of work was about to be wiped out by somebody who had come along and done it better and Mm. I'd missed my chance to get it published because the field had moved so fast. Mm -hmm. My work had already been left behind. Mm -hmm. 
And I felt that way for months until I heard back from Eichler that the paper had gotten in. Wow. That was only the beginning. That January, actually some colleagues and friends at Google put out a paper basically saying, hey, this stuff doesn't work on ImageNet. I didn't have the resources at that point to do ImageNet. So that was really tough. And it's kind of been this constant, at least it was for a while until the work was more broadly accepted, this constant waiting game for, is somebody going to come along and tell me this was all wrong? Is somebody going to come along and tell me this is all a waste of time? And Mm -hmm. you know, when a paper gets that kind of publicity, you have a target on your back and everybody Mm -hmm. wants to come along and show that it doesn't hold up. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's how science works. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to make their name off of the fact that you made your name and Somebody genuinely thinks you did bad science and mm-hmm. wants to tell you that, but it's really hard on you as a person. Mm-hmm. There was another paper in iClear, ran a relatively similar set of experiments, but for neuron pruning. Mm-hmm. And th- very different things happen in neuron pruning. Mm-hmm. But the, they revised the final version of the paper to have a very hefty component that was about how lottery ticket was wrong mm-hmm. and was bad science. And you know, I think they genuinely believe that. And I respect that. If I thought something was bad science, I would write a paper about it. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did that in iClear this year. So mm-hmm. I did that to somebody else. But it's also kind of tough when you see a poster at iClear where a huge section is all about lottery tickets and why this is bad science right next to you basically or a couple posters down or what have you and some of this stuff is just how it is in academia but you know we can all be a little kinder and remember that there are humans in this process as well who are just trying to make some progress and are doing their best as well Mm -hmm. nobody's trying to do bad science by and large Mm -hmm. i love that nobody's trying to do bad science were there failed experiments or failed research that you didn't get to publish that were interesting? Uh, a lot. I mean, and usually it didn't get to the stage where I could like give the idea a name and say, oh, here was the whole paper, but it you know failed the day before the deadline. Want to read it? But you know, a lot of ideas for pruning early in training. It's a problem that I've come back to over time. Mm-hmm. It's not, I think, the lowest hanging fruit. And it's a really hard problem where I think we need to understand a lot more about the world before we can understand the right thing to do here. And maybe some fundamental new insight on the world mm-hmm. will just unlock that for free. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I've tried a lot of stuff on that. Mm-hmm. You name it, I've tried it and I've had no luck. Interesting. I'll be the first to admit that. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It may just mean that we need some more progress first, mm-hmm. but it's a hard problem. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I've probably spent as much energy as anybody on it and I wish it had been successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to do, though, any kind of research where you're just trying to make something happen. Yeah. It's much easier to do the kind of research where you ask a scientific question mm-hmm. where if the answer is yes, mm-hmm. that's cool. And if the answer is no, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the research we do in deep learning is much more of the engineering style. Here's a thing mm-hmm. I want to do. You read the paper and you see, oh, here's the logic. And oh, if you follow this logic, of course, this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they came up with the technique first. And then the logic is all to make the paper sound like a compelling story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a junior researcher, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. You think that all research should proceed in that way. And you should start with doing some math and find your way to the conclusions. Yes. And that's never how it works empirically. No. But it's really hard to do that kind of work because you just fail a lot and you may be working on a problem that's impossible and you have no idea. Mm -hmm. You may be working on a problem where you don't have the right tools at this moment in time to address that problem. Mm -hmm. So I tend to be a big advocate for doing this more scientific style research Mm -hmm. where ask a question, design an experiment, and make sure that the question you ask has a good answer either way. Mm -hmm. You can write a paper if the answer is yes and you can write a paper where the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And everybody will like it either way. It's hard to come by those questions, but I think it's easier to come by a question like that than it is to get an engineering technique to work in a space where you don't know whether it's even possible. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's kind of like a question answering versus like creation process. The like creation process is really hard because there's like one thing that works and you have to figure out what it is, whereas you can empirically assess a hypothesis. And then after you run the experiment, you have a result. 
Exactly. And I like the style of work because you can strive toward things, but you can always have an answer. You can kind of step your way there. You can mm-hmm. climb your way up to something bit by bit by bit, mm-hmm. as opposed to like always trying to hit a home run. Most of the time that doesn't work. And when it does work, it's not going to be you. It's going to be the other person who was also sitting there just swinging for the fences the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And you can see this a lot with the self-supervised learning literature mm-hmm. these days, especially in vision where... Mm-hmm. You're seeing a lot of concurrent work right now, which is fine. That's great. But it's a lot of people who are swinging for the fences, a lot of people who are trying to be the first person to have the next advance. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, it's a very unappealing style of work to me, first of all, because in the end, you're not doing something unique. You're not making your own personal contribution. You're just trying to be first. Mm-hmm. You're trying to attach your name to something. Mm-hmm. That's not a good reason to do science, mm-hmm. in my view. But also, whatever you do is going to be surpassed by the next person trying to be first. I just don't like that rat race. I'd rather be off in a space where I can ask deep questions and take my time and think it through. Mm-hmm. This new work on lottery ticket that I've got in progress, I'm not submitting it to NeurIPS. I don't think it's ready yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm not worried about getting scooped by somebody else who's doing it because I think it's different enough and crazy enough that I'm not really too worried about that. Mm-hmm. And even if somebody else does come out with it, okay, fine. We've got a concurrent finding. Mm-hmm. So what? Mm-hmm. There are lots of those. My mentor, Ari Morcos, loves to say there's a Wikipedia article on, I think it's list of simultaneous discoveries. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them. Yeah. The way I think about science is there's an adjacent possible. And a lot of people are thinking about that adjacent possible. And so you'll find pieces of it at the same time. Totally makes sense. Exactly. Just like building up experimentally, step by step. I sort of see that showing through in a a bunch of your different papers. Backing up just a little bit and a little more of a general question is, how do you find more papers like this? You know, the lottery ticket one, that's pretty interesting. The one that you had this year at iClear, the like training bash storm and only bash storm. That's a pretty weird way of training things. That's a pretty strange thing to do. But it's interesting, right? And if it works, it's interesting. If it doesn't work, he's also learning something. How do I find full A, more papers like this? And where it's just like, well, we tried the thing and it worked or not. And not the reverse of like, oh, we built a system and then backed in the explanation. How do you find things like that? And B, how do you find other papers that are more like very simple, like the XOR experiment I really like in the lottery ticket hypothesis. Look, this is about as simple as we can make it without it not making any sense at all. Now, sometimes those things don't generalize, but you know, a lot of the time they do generalize if you do a little more work on them. So I don't know how to find more of either. Of yeah, we actually, people are like, oh, what kind of papers are you interested in? Like, there's no name for this type of paper <laughs> that is really, really simple, basic experiments that try to get out how neural networks work and like ask really basic questions and publish yes or no. Let me give you a little more about this and I'll tell you the people who I admire most in this Mm -hmm. area. But in terms of what to call it, and I think they're, depending on which research group you look at, there are a lot of different names. If you check the boxes at NeurIPS, you'll, or at least when you used to check the boxes on CMT, there was an analysis and understanding of deep learning Mm. area that popped up, I think last year or the year before. Mm. But this is one perspective on it. If you chat with my colleague Ari Morcos at Facebook, who is a big advocate for this, he'll call it science of deep learning. Mm. And that's the title that I usually adopt for my work because he and I work together. If you chat with Honey and Benham, who are researchers at Google Brain, Mm -hmm. they run the deep phenomena team at Google Brain. Mm -hmm. And they'll refer to this as research on deep phenomena. Mm. And those are the researchers I look to, Mm -hmm. those folks at Google and those folks at Facebook who really, I think, are leading the way forward on this. I look at their papers and I say, gosh, I wish I had written those papers. And I look at those papers and say, I want to write papers like this. Mm -hmm. Got it. These are the people who I admire a lot. One thing you'll notice about these folks, they're all very junior, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. I mean, these are all very important senior people at their companies, but in terms of their career paths, they're still very early on and they have a lot of amazing work to do in the future. 
this is very much a bit of a grassroots sort of thing that's starting to happen in the field mm -hmm. among folks who are coming in from other areas like mm -hmm. physics or neuroscience in the case of the folks I've mentioned. Yes. And are a little bit dissatisfied mm -hmm. with the state of, of research here. Yes. People who are coming in as PhD students and are very dissatisfied with the state of the research mm -hmm. in deep learning. Mm -hmm. So I think this is kind of emerging. This is something where it's hard to publish right now in this area. Mm -hmm. People will usually read one of these papers and say, no novel technique. Right. People are very primed to look for what I'd call an engineering paper and not for a science paper. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. In no other field of science are you like, oh, you don't have a novel methodology. They're like, you use a new methodology we can't replicate. That's bad. <laughs> if you look at the batch norm paper on open review, and actually if you look at the other paper, the early phase of neural network training on open review, mm -hmm. you'll see this very nice rant that the reviewers got when they said that, largely copied and pasted, to be honest. Ari wrote for both of those and I modified for our latest paper, mm. but basically about how science is an emerging topic and reminding the reviewers that this is important work. It's work that's been published frequently in iClear uh, and other conferences. It's work that's been featured in invited talks at these conferences mm -hmm. very frequently. Mm -hmm. It's something the community and the organizers are indicating they value. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard to percolate that to the reviewer level because it's an easier review to write if you're looking for a state of the art yeah. mm -hmm. and that's your criterion for acceptance. Mm -hmm. Anna Rogers in the NLP community has done a great job pushing not being state-of-the-art cannot be a reason to reject a book. Yes. And you don't need to be state-of-the-art to get it. Yep. But I think we need more than that. So I'm working with a couple of colleagues right now to just think more broadly about what the reviewing criteria should look like and how we should categorize papers. Mm -hmm. I kind of do see a world where, at least on the empirical side, there are two kinds of papers, maybe three. The first is an engineering paper mm -hmm. where you propose a technique that makes something better and works well, and you should be evaluated on how much better things are, how non-obvious the technique mm -hmm. is, how novel it is, and whether this is the kind of thing that is simple enough. I think simplicity is an aesthetic that we don't value enough, whether mm -hmm. it's simple enough that people would just stick this in. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't require you to rewrite your whole ResNet from scratch <laughs> and do something completely different, which is not going to get you very far. Yes. That's the engineering papers. Mm -hmm. You can imagine what the reviewing form should look like for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are science papers where you ask a question and really the evaluation of the paper should look something like, what is your hypothesis? Mm -hmm. What is the background for why you came up with this hypothesis? What is the experiment that you will use to try to assess or falsify this hypothesis? Mm -hmm. What are your various attempts to falsify the hypothesis? What was the result of those attempts? Mm -hmm. Hopefully you failed a lot, mm -hmm. in which case the hypothesis, we should be more confident about it. <laughs> I'm literally reading Karl Popper in a reading group with a couple of colleagues right now <laughs> yeah. because I want to know what science is. I question it. but. Mm -hmm. That should be what the reviewing form looks like. Mm -hmm. And the evaluation should be how significant the question is. Yes. And the quality of the empirical evaluation of the question. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that should be the criteria on which we determine whether we accept. But that's super different from an engineering paper. And we should be able to opt into different reviewing criteria. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. And I'll give you one more kind of paper that I'm starting to think about a lot, which is the there exists kind of paper. Mm. Like, look, I made GPT-3. <laughs> or the look, I made this thing that has never been made before. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of engineering paper, but it's less about a general engineering principle mm -hmm. and much more about a specific artifact. Mm -hmm. That artifact could be a data set. Mm -hmm. That artifact could be a cool new network. Mm -hmm. And you know, NERVS now has a data set track. So again, we're moving this direction. Mm -hmm. But that's a different set of reviewing criteria. How novel was the artifact? Mm -hmm. How good of a job did you do trying to understand why this artifact has the properties it has or mm. what properties it has. That's a different set of criteria mm -hmm. because really the creation of an artifact is itself something worth analyzing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All this is a long-winded way of saying that I think every reviewer comes in with their own reviewing form in their head. Mm. 
And we should have different forms that are a little more structured. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think when you submit a paper, you should have to fill out this form. Mm -hmm. One thing I think about if I get a professor job and get to teach students this is I want to create the little form that you fill out for a science paper and make the students fill it out every week for the paper. That right, they yeah. And in fact, when we put papers in archive, when we submit to, you know, my magical future version of iClear, mm -hmm. you should have a cover sheet on your paper. The first page or two of the paper should be filling out this cover sheet, mm -hmm. just filling in all the metadata. Mm -hmm. Because this guides any reader through the paper. It tells you everything you need to know in a very simple way. Mm -hmm. And then the paper itself is the narrative and all the details. Mm -hmm. But in the end, and this I, is all I ever want to know about a paper. And it also <laughs> forces the student to think about the problem in a more rigorous way. Mm -hmm. Like a checklist manifesto for papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Checklists, I don't think are the right approach for this. Like the reproducibility checklist, yeah. I think that's the right approach for that. But I think a cover sheet, like making people think about the problem as science. Yeah, yeah I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. I'll put this one out there as if anyone runs a conference, I would love to get involved and make this happen. I keep putting out this offer. Hire me to do free work for your conference. <laughs> Test out some new reviewing ideas that I have we'll and put, see if we can make things better. We'll put that in the blog post. Mm -hmm. Jonathan's open yes. to being hired for free <laughs> to help with conferences. Usually you have to twist people's arms to get them to do that. I will happily join a PC or anything like that to institute these sorts of things and see if we can help reviewers do a better job. Yeah. No reviewer wants to do a crappy job. Yeah. But a lot of people aren't trained, aren't equipped, or are coming in with their worldview. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we need to have a way to help intermediate that better. That totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. I feel like it might even make the papers themselves stronger by kind of specializing. Because yeah. right now it's sort of a mix. It's like, well, we threw some theory in there because we needed some math. Otherwise, you'd reject it. But like, yeah. the math isn't good. It doesn't make you sad. So it's not really a theory paper. Right. <laughs> the theory is wrong. Yeah. Like, we just came up with this method first. Yeah. It'd be nice to have them separated. <laughs> If you look at the iClear lottery ticket paper in the open review comments, you'll see that one of the reviewers said the paper needs more math notation. <laughs> oh, no. I was talking about this because I've seen it, but I didn't know it was that particular paper oh also. God. I'm of mixed views. Like the paper should have had some math notation to clarify some concepts very precisely, mm -hmm. but it's a fine line between that and just trying to dress it up so that it looks a little more like a machine learning paper should, whatever that means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really frustrating. Do you have work of yours that you feel is most overlooked? You thought it was really interesting, but others didn't seem to get it or don't seem to get it yet. Yes, I think the linear mode connectivity in the lottery ticket hypothesis paper is the best paper that I've written. I think it is the best research that I've done. personally. Mm -hmm. I think the original lottery ticket work is interesting and breaks some new ground and makes you think differently. I think this paper is just a really exquisite empirical job that is really well thought through. All credit to my collaborators, like Carolina Jugaite, who was my second author on this paper and was super duper involved in every single aspect, came up with the idea of linear mode connectivity as something to put in here. Mm -hmm. This paper got rejected three times before we got it in. Oh my God. It was a paper that it took us four tries to figure out how to tell the story mm -hmm. and what it was about. Mm -hmm. It is the loving result of a year and a half of work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just very pristine and very well executed on a lot of fronts. Mm -hmm. People read the original lottery ticket paper and take it for what it says and never read the follow-up work, which I think does a better job in many ways of coming at the problem and understanding all the details of it. Mm. I'd urge people to read that paper if you're interested in lottery ticket stuff. And if you do lottery ticket work, do your work with that paper in mind, because I think it clarifies and cleans up and fixes up a lot of the problems in the previous paper, mm -hmm. including stupid things like the network I called ResNet 18 in the original paper. It was actually ResNet 20, but I didn't know the difference. <laughs> I'm going to do one more revision of the lottery ticket paper once I finish up my dissertation <laughs> to clean up those sorts of messes and maybe add some comments here and there yeah. to point people to the right future references. Yeah, but <laughs> whole other story. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Um, I was going to say, it's actually funny that you call out that paper because what I do before the podcast is I always go read through people's work, like most of the papers that they have written that are at all relevant to the topic uh, at hand. 
And this was the one paper that I flagged as I stumbled on this as I was looking at it. It seems really interesting, but I didn't get a chance to read this one. Can you give the basic idea? Like, this is the one where I was like, wow, how come I never seen this one before? Like, I've never seen anyone post this. There weren't very many citations of it, but it looked super cool. I was like, oh, I need like a longer time to read this one. So yeah, if you want to give a, like, a brief teaser for it. This is the paper I mentioned before, actually. Mm-hmm. The one with the convex optimum. Mm-hmm. That's right. mm-hmm. Finding the same convex region. Mm-hmm. This is right. that paper. And I think it's really deep and really interesting. And just there's so many questions that come out of it. But it's a really meaty paper. Mm-hmm. like, And it has, I think, 12 appendices, all of which are actually pretty important and contain <laughs> useful experiments. Right. <laughs> it's a lot. It's definitely not be treated. Okay. Okay. So this is a good like paper club one. All right. Great. I'll stick on my yeah, yeah. for that. <laughs> Are there any follow-ups out of that paper that are still open questions that you want to work on? You mentioned that there were two around sparse. I mean, we I guess we talked about finding sparse networks at the beginning of training, and are they actually hard to train? Yeah, there, there's some fun stuff cooking there. If you if you want to chat about linear mode connectivity, invite Carolina, though, because really that paper is the product of a lot of very intense collaboration with oh. all four authors. Yeah. And, you know, This is what happens after you spend a year and a half trying to get the paper into a conference and getting rejected over and over and over again. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. The paper is just very tightly written with a lot of people's ideas. Mixed okay, in. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll just have her on the podcast. And, and yeah, then we'll talk. you should do that. She's got a lot of amazing work and you should definitely, oh, like, That's great. she's brilliant. Thank great. you. I want to give you one more piece of overlooked work. Mm, yeah, I think great. this is overlooked in a different way, which is my work on facial recognition. Mm. And this is work from a former life. Mm-hmm. But it's work that is really scientific in its own way. Mm-hmm. The first author in this paper, Claire Garvey, collected data from 100 police departments around the country by filing Freedom of Information Act requests. And the data was tens of thousands of pages of documents about facial recognition systems. Wow. And she analyzed it like crazy and came out with this remarkable report on police use of facial recognition. This is the most meaningful thing I've ever worked on and expect I will ever work on, probably, and the most impactful in terms of actually affecting people's lives. Can you give us an analysis of what some of the findings were? Definitely. The finding was that facial recognition among state and local police departments in the U.S., I will say there are about 10,000 state and local police departments in the U.S., and usually we think of the FBI and the state police here and there, but 10,000 departments, each of which has its own policies and does its own thing, a lot of those departments had facial recognition systems. A lot of states had them. And at that point, it was one in two American adults were in a police facial recognition system, whether they knew it or not, largely because they had a driver's license. Whoa. And at this point, it's probably a lot higher than that, if I were guessing. Claire has the latest numbers, I'm sure. But we dug really deep. Claire did a really thorough job figuring out everything that was going on. I believe there are still some lawsuits she has pending against various police departments who weren't forthcoming with documents. Mm -hmm. And I studied bias in facial recognition, tried to understand whether it was a problem, what people were thinking about with it. And we wrote about at least what we had seen from what we read on that topic. Mm -hmm. This has blown up into its own area, Mm -hmm. but eventually there were hearings in the House of Representatives based on this. Uh, A lot of state and local bans of facial recognition. Mm -hmm. This is work that's commonly cited in that. Mm -hmm. This is work that actually affected people's lives. And it's worth always asking ourselves, what is real? Will these papers be remembered? Will these papers matter in N years? And are we doing things that matter? What are the things that matter? Mm -hmm. I hope the lottery ticket work will matter. I hope it'll be interesting. It's affected the lives of grad students. Mm But the work on facial recognition affected the lives of people. Mm -hmm. It had an impact in the real world. And not every paper can do that. Not every researcher wants to do that or is in a position to do that with their skills. But we should always be asking ourselves where the opportunities are to do that. Mm -hmm. Or how we can, even outside of our research, be of service to the people who have that ability. Mm -hmm. Whether our technical skills can be useful to the policy world. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on how police departments should be using facial recognition or should not be? 
I would direct you to the report where Claire and Alvaro, my co-authors, put together a wonderful risk framework Interesting. on exactly this topic. They're the lawyers. They thought a lot about this in that respect. Mm. My personal philosophy at a high level is we should only use the technology when we have decided we should use it. Mm. And in some sense, you can think of this as either a blacklist or a whitelist. Either we have the technology and we ban certain uses, mm -hmm. or we ban the technology and approve certain uses. Mm -hmm. And I've come around to the latter view. So the starting point is a ban of the technology by law enforcement, but with room to, in whatever circumstances we deem appropriate, mm -hmm. and that's going to vary by culture and place and time. Mm -hmm. In an emergency situation, perhaps you do want to make this technology available. Mm -hmm. If there's someone you need to find in imminent danger, mm -hmm. that should be a very limited set of circumstances. And you shouldn't also be allowed to use it for every random person on the street. Mm -hmm. Or as Claire found recently, there should be regulations about who you run through the system. She found an example where the NYPD, it was too grainy for the system to pick up the person. They thought he looked kind of like Woody Harrelson. So they put a picture of Woody Harrelson through the facial recognition system and went after that person. Oh, my God. Or where people had their eyes closed in photos. So they went to Google Images and Photoshopped eyes onto the person's faces so it would get accepted by the facial recognition system. Oh. When we think about out of distribution, oh. <laughs> this is that in the real world. It's worth connecting with the real world from time to time, remembering what's really happening with these systems or who our users are or what cautions we need to give when we put these things out there. Totally. Speaking of very different or unusual types of papers, do you have unusual or maybe controversial research opinions that it seems like other people or many people in the field don't necessarily see or agree with? I'll give you a controversial one, which is I think that deep learning, actually, we're just at the beginning of what's coming there. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of great work to come. Mm -hmm. I'm used to the San Francisco, the sky is falling view of the world on this stuff. Hmm. And I will call out San Francisco in this respect, because <laughs> it's usually just my friends in San Francisco who act this way and not the folks on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense that, oh, no, AI winter is coming. All the cool papers were written in 2016. <laughs> there are no good ideas that are coming out now. If any of my friends are listening to this podcast, you know who you are. <laughs> you all the time. Stop complaining. <laughs> this stuff is having a real impact in the real world. And this is at the point where we literally don't know what we're doing or how this stuff works. Yeah. Imagine if we understand it yeah. and we can actually turn this into an engineering tool, not a throw things against the wall and see what sticks to That's it. Right. If this looks more like coding than it does like just trying random things until something works. Josh made a really good comment the other day. He was complaining about a thing and he was like, man, I feel like I'm writing assembly right now. This is so annoying. I can't wait until we have actual tools that compiler or, C or Python yeah. or you know, JavaScript. Fortunately, <laughs> even with writing assembly, you, at least you knew how a computer worked. Yeah, at least you here, have the opcodes. Here we have no opcodes. I, I think it's a little more like writing binary. Like I'm writing opcodes in binary. We don't even know what the opcodes are. Like, By all the strange happenstance during my PhD, my advisor, Michael Carbon, is a programming language researcher. Mm. And he sees the world through that point of view. Mm. And he keeps referring me to the phenomenon of what's called code collapse. And you can look at the Wikipedia article. Mm. This was sometime in the, I think, I want to say the 70s, when essentially we only had assembly and we only had these relatively low level languages and we didn't know how to build large scale software yet. Mm -hmm. And systems just fell over. Mm -hmm. Frequently systems would just collapse mm -hmm. because we didn't know how to make sense out of giant software systems built in this way. And we needed new principles and new research on this discipline called software engineering mm -hmm. to get there. Wow. And he always draws the analogy, full credit to Professor Carbon on this one, he draws the analogy to code collapse, and that's how it feels right now. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily know the right principles or the right abstractions, and it's much harder because we're not controlling ones and zeros. We're controlling this weird animal we don't understand right. that learns in a way we don't understand. Yeah. But 
the same principles may apply. Mm -hmm. And this should give us some hope that we can get to a better place with these kinds of systems. Wow. We can make these into real engineering tools. What an incredibly helpful historical perspective. Yeah. That <laughs> complex like, was exactly what I was looking for the word for. Yeah. That analogy is perfect. This technique has a bright future. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the neural networks we train in 20 years will look nothing like the ones we train now. Mm -hmm. And the way that we train them will be different and what have you. But it's getting things done. It's driving cars. It's solving big problems in the world. I've taken the controversial opinion that this is useful mm -hmm. and we should be optimistic. And also that I don't like San Francisco that much, but that's a whole other can of worms with no offense to my friends who are or were out there pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the other controversial opinion I'll take, and you know, we'll see how this plays in this room, is we shouldn't take that optimism too far mm -hmm. and think that this is the horse we're going to ride all the way to AGI mm -hmm. or that we will see AGI or our grandchildren will see AGI or that we'll ever see AGI. <laughs> I'm not going to take this one too far. I'm a scientist and I build on what I see in front of me. What I see in front of me is very promising, mm -hmm. but what I see in front of me is not intelligent by any stretch mm -hmm. right now. Yes. So let's keep it in the middle. Let's be optimistic, but let's not get ahead of ourselves yeah. here. Yeah. It's a great marketing pitch and a great way to raise VC money. But I think some folks at one of the places very interested in this told me when I asked about how they were going to monetize, they told me that they were going to invent AGI and then we wouldn't need money. <laughs> Yeah, that would be the end. And I think I know which company you're referring to, but <laughs> that's my personal take on things. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to emphasize the optimism because I think among the people who consider themselves the intelligentsia of deep learning, there's a lot of pessimism and a lot of sense that the sky is going to fall and we haven't done anything important in three years. But I've been hearing that since I started in the field. So if people always say the sky is falling, I'm never going to believe it. <laughs> And the evidence doesn't support it. Yeah, I, mm. I've not heard that from very many people. Then we're in San Francisco. But so. we're in San Francisco. Yeah. I encourage folks, keep a balance here. Yeah. Let's take it easy. Yeah. Right. Let's make some progress. Let's keep doing good science uh, and we'll see where it takes We're it. obviously at the beginning. It's only been yeah. five years, so yeah. chill out. Yeah. Maybe been a little bit longer. I mean, people have been doing machine learning. I think one of the points that made in one of your papers is people have been pruning networks and looking at sparsity for like a really, really long time. None of this stuff is new. There's very old methods that have been reinvented. So... Yeah, people have been working on this stuff both for a long time. And there's lots of stuff that's new. I, I agree with the, like, keep it in the middle. Sky's not falling. The sky's not exploding. There's good, interesting stuff to be done. And I think we can move ourselves towards a world where there's less of code collapse of our these things. And they're like real tools that we can use to hopefully do useful things for other people to your earlier point as well. Yeah. To contextualize my feelings about California just for a moment and to apologize to all the Californians <laughs> in the audience, I'm an East Coaster at heart, so I have to be that way and I like bad weather. But, you know, I'm really reminded there's this great Dijkstra quote about object-oriented programming that some folks may have heard, which is that object-oriented programming is an exceptionally bad idea, which could only have originated in California. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what does that say about And, you know... <laughs> Dijkstra brilliant invented a lot of really important stuff in our field, but you know, object-oriented programming is at the foundation of everything. So, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Very interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> what do you feel like kind of shifting gears a little bit? Were there any mistakes that really stood out to you as a researcher that you feel like you made that you learned from? Constantly. Mm -hmm making all the mistakes that I've criticized during this conversation <laughs> that I can criticize them because if I've criticized any mistake, it's because I've made it. Mm -hmm. It's everything from releasing my work too early when it wasn't ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. That was out of ignorance. Proposing big ideas without having enough evidence to really support them mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. enough attempts to falsify them in enough settings. Mm -hmm. I've done plenty of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also not dreaming big enough in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. and being very quick to criticize the science of other folks, but not having anything to show on my own end. Mm -hmm. it, it's much nicer when, if we're going to criticize someone else's ideas, we have something better to propose instead. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's hard to do, but we should strive to do it more. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of the mistakes that I've discussed are mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. So I feel comfortable calling them out in others because I can totally call them out in myself very easily. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular things that you felt like you didn't dream big enough on, but that later you were proven wrong? I think on, on lots of things. Pruning early in training, I think folks have been more willing to accept a result that is progress but does not solve the whole problem. Mm. I haven't been willing to be incremental enough and see the possibility in things that didn't get us all the way but took us somewhere. Mm. I think the hardest thing for a junior researcher is to see the value in something that isn't perfect. Mm. We're the most critical reviewers, Mm -hmm. very quick to dismiss a paper that isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. But I think the senior researchers tend to see the glimmer of the beginning of a good idea Mm. in a paper that may not be perfect. I really appreciate the reviewers I had on the lottery ticket paper. That paper is far from perfect in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm the first to admit that. And I can tell you every way that it's not. Mm -hmm. But the reviewers were kind enough to see the possibility and and see that this could be valuable and could be an interesting idea. And to give me the platform to push it forward. And it's hard to do. It's it's much easier to write a really critical review and say that a paper is trash because they didn't do X, Y, and Z. But it's hard to see the possibility and it's hard to see the value in something imperfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a junior researcher criticizing something that's not perfect is not able to see beyond that. The senior researcher sees farther. Exactly. It's something that's hard to do and I don't have the answer. It's something that I do. I'm a really tough reviewer right now Mm. and I want to get better at this. Mm. Part of it is I want to have a high bar on science. Science is enough of a deal breaker for me Mm -hmm. that I keep papers out for that reason. But at the same time, it's hard to recognize the glimmer of something really important in a paper Mm -hmm. or the thing that will be the seed of some other person's great idea that Mm -hmm. will lead to something really important, but the paper needs to get published and get circulated Mm -hmm. for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's thinking about publication itself differently. Right. And I think we definitely think about publication as a gate because we have been gate kept. Mm -hmm. We are essentially paying forward some poor treatment that, you know, as junior researchers we're receiving at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can do better. As opposed to seeing publication as like a set of Legos. Exactly. Put something out and build on top of it. Or even more, just seeing that publication doesn't have to mean that this was somehow significant. Mm -hmm. It can just be right or true. Mm -hmm. That's enough for publication. I think the NLP community has gotten better about that than we have in the broader machine learning community. But why should we strive for having some arbitrary bar? Why not just accept things that are true and let people get them out there and then let them move forward? I love that. Disseminate knowledge. Publication doesn't have to be suffering. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. I love that. Kind of like exactly how you put it. It does not have to mean it's significant. It can just be true. The reviewing process is just to arbitrate truth. Yes. We want to make sure that things are well justified enough Mm -hmm. that they're probably right. Yes. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered why we care so much about significance. I wonder if it's like some kind of weird engineering approach to machine learning, which is very different than other scientific fields. It's an artificial kind of scarcity, Mm. which I think the virtual conference world has completely thrown out the notion that we don't have enough room to take everybody into the poster room or what have you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's gone. So we can think about the world differently or that we have only a certain number of pages in the proceedings. We need to use them very sparingly or it'll get expensive to print. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. We should help to surface important work, but there are lots of ways to do that in a venue where you also let in a wide variety of work. You can give spotlights, you can help to highlight work. There are lots of ways of doing that that don't require you to make a bunch of people suffer unnecessarily or look for arbitrary reasons to reduce the number of papers that get in. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's why I love the open reviews, not necessarily the comment period forever. It sounded pretty stressful, but I do love the open reviews because it's like, well, I can just look at all the papers, regardless of whether they're accepted or not. Like, this is great. Or archive, right? Like, 
can just look at everything. Now, it's a lot of work. I do wish there were easier way to get through that. But yeah, it would be great to see a system that moved more towards that and less of this. I don't think most people read through all of the things submitted to iClear. It was educational to do that, but I don't think most people do that. I don't read that much. Well, I'm busy trying to do research. I already have a full-time job. Exactly. One other question I did want to ask is, are there any stories behind particular papers where it's like, oh, this is where it ended up, but it started in this other crazy place and there was this crazy journey behind it. Those are always kind of interesting to hear, like how things developed and changed. I'll tell you the story behind the batch norm paper. Great. Mm. That was perfect. I wanted to talk about that one anyway. <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on that paper because yeah. it's probably not where I'll be doing most of my work in the future. But I was trying to train networks in low dimensional subspaces in that sense freeze, I guess, certain dimensions of the optimization landscape mm -hmm. and tried doing that and tried training a network in a 100 dimensional subspace. Mm -hmm. And it got great accuracy. And I thought, wow, I must have picked a really good subspace. Then I tried a 10 dimensional subspace and it still got good accuracy. And I was like, wow, I must have picked a really good subspace. <laughs> and I tried a one dimensional subspace. I was like, wow, I picked a really good subspace. <laughs> then the final ablation, I tried a zero dimensional subspace. <laughs> wow, I picked a really good subspace. <laughs> It was still getting good accuracy. Eventually, I realized I was projecting all the parameters except the batch norm parameter. Interesting. And there we are. That's how the paper came. <laughs> That's amazing. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Then I started scaling up the networks a little bit and saw what happened as you went to ultra-wide and ultra-deep networks because I was at Facebook at that time and had the infrastructure to do it. And turns out something kind of interesting happens. So... There you go. That's the story behind the paper. That's so funny. That's amazing. Our bachelor and blog post also came out and of it. Blog post was the same. It was almost the same thing. We basically had a bug in our implementation of Biol, and it was like we forgot to put bachelor in, and then didn't work at all, like at all, at all. And yep. We put it in, and it worked perfectly. Wow, that's pretty weird. Like, why does this have such a huge impact on it? It's just normalizing. It's so strange. So interesting how a tiny little bug like that sort of leads to really interesting research. <laughs> I won't claim that this paper should tell us how we should train our networks or anything like that, but it's really interesting that random features can get you that far. Yeah. That's about the most I can say about the paper in terms of yeah. the impact, but it's a really fun paper. This was my break from lottery ticket and sparsity. <laughs> and yet sparsity does pop up toward the end of the story in that paper regardless because it's following me everywhere I go and I can't get away from it. <laughs> it was a fun paper to write. I'll say that much. And you know, kudos to my collaborators, Ari and David, who did a great job and went on the journey with me. <laughs> What do you mean sparsity popped up at the end? It turns out that when you train only batch norm, the batch norm parameters learn to disable a large number of features in the network uh, and you get per feature sparsity. Right. Saw that and I just had to face palm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get away from this darn sparsity. <laughs> the one time I try to write a paper that has nothing to do with it and it, it gets me anyway. That's so interesting. <laughs> but on the flip side, you know, one thing we should take away is that sparsity <clears throat> is an important concept in machine learning and it's everywhere. And more to the point, we should wonder why is it everywhere? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. And this is a question that I'm working on at the moment. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. hopefully I'll have more to say someday. But why is sparsity everywhere? This isn't an accident. Uh -huh. It's everywhere in machine learning. It's also everywhere in biology. Like yeah. You do not have densely connected brains, right? There's probably a good reason for that. You could just as easily have made them densely connected and didn't. Okay. Why? Well, maybe not just as easily, but could have tended towards that. It's very much not that. Yeah. You mentioned that you took a year off in between undergrad, like undergrad and, law, and school. law school. I am not a lawyer. <laughs> if you email me with legal questions, I'll happily take your money, but I won't give you a good answer. <laughs> but you are an adjunct professor of law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't come with a JD or any legal expertise. Okay. I wish that had come in the package. It would have been great. <laughs> I do advocate for years off. I think they're great. 
maybe one other question, talking a little bit about sparsity and about these other ideas from the lottery ticket hypothesis. Do you have any sort of high level intuitions for like, why does this stuff work so well? Like what's going on exactly? Or any sort of like hunches? Yeah, like hunches about about this exactly? Or I, I don't. Much like that. This is why I do the work. I want to know. I don't want to have any big dogma about this mm-hmm. because everybody has their dogma yeah. and everybody's then trying to go off and demonstrate their dogma. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing. And that's why I do the experiments and try to figure it out. I want to have dogma, but I need the experiments to tell me what my dogma should be. <laughs> Great. That makes sense. Well, I, I hope someday, you know, there will be the Frankel view of how neural networks work, but I don't know what that view is right now. And I, I wish I did. Uh-huh. If I did, I'd be shouting it at you right now. Have me back on the podcast in 20 years and, you know, I'll hopefully have something to shout in your face. About. That's right. That's right. You mentioned this before, and I think you asked a little bit about this, Tianjin, but just curious if there's any other sort of like low-level tips or hacks or things that you do that make it easier for you as a researcher that maybe everyone else doesn't know about. For example, you accidentally started off with like very simple networks, which is actually a pretty good way to start. And I think you probably carried some of that forward, as you said, you know, only using CFAR. Are there any other little tricks or hacks or whatever? I have never regretted doing good software engineering. (laughs) Not once. And I only recently realized not everyone comes into machine learning with a background in professional grade software engineering because not everyone majored in computer science in undergrad. Uh, That skill set is my secret weapon. uh, I can build experimental frameworks such that I can manage 100,000 trained and pruned networks. uh, And I have them probably floating around at this point. uh, But I can actually go and find them uh, and get their accuracy and plot them uh, because I've got a system built for that. uh, Open LTH, it's available publicly. That's the reason I'm able to do this kind of empirical work. Okay. Any student who I might hire to work with at some point, if I'm a professor, that's a skill set that I'm going to look for or one that I'm going to need to learn how to teach mm-hmm. to graduate students. It's something we don't teach, we don't emphasize. And a lot of folks in machine learning are really bad coders, mm-hmm. but it's such an important skill. Yeah. Don't take it for granted. Research code doesn't have to be bad. And mm-hmm. if it is bad, you're going to have a really hard time doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Google Scholar has a year and a citation. And the lottery ticket paper did not come out that long ago. You have a surprising number of papers building on top of that. And as you said, you guys were scooped on some of the other ones just because like some of the follow-up work was sufficiently obvious that other people did it. So it's not like you got to do all the work. I think you just got to run a lot of experiments probably because of the engineering thing. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Josh's entire thing is be able to run as many experiments as possible as soon as they come into your head. Our infrastructure is basically built to support that. I would love to learn more about your infrastructure itself. <laughs> I'm going to go check out your open source one. Because yeah, that's like, great. Okay. that seems cool. <laughs> the question I would ask anyone, to, mm-hmm. if you want to like ask yourself about your empirical chop, mm-hmm. if I gave you 500 GPUs, gave you a cluster with that tomorrow and said, go off and do whatever you want, could you actually keep those GPUs back? Yes. Uh... Could you actually make any use of that? Oh my God. And I think for most people in the field, the answer is no. Yes. <laughs> but if you can't do that, that's a skill that one should build up such that you can do that because that's the only way those papers are, as you said, the result of when I got infrastructure, I kept it crunching numbers mm-hmm. as much as I could. Mm-hmm. The ideas definitely outstrip the infrastructure, mm-hmm. or at least they should. Mm-hmm. But you need to find a way to actually get those experiments running. Mm-hmm. When you want to train 700 networks on ImageNet, <laughs> could you actually pull that off if I gave you the resources to do mm-hmm. it? It's, this is hilarious. Josh said exactly the same thing the other day. <laughs> he was like, our internal test should be given a cluster of hundreds of GPUs. Can we keep all those machines busy and tend them all? Yeah, we're like machine tenders. We're like machine almost. tenders. That's right. That's what my research is. I keep the TPUs busy. Thank you, Google. <laughs> and, you know, when the TPUs aren't busy, I go to my list of ideas and shovel another one on there. And sometimes things work and sometimes things don't. Mm-hmm. But 
there were a lot of TPU hours that may not have been spent the best way possible, but you can do a paper a month if you have enough ideas and you've got the infrastructure good enough that it doesn't take a lot of thought to run an experiment. Yeah. I'm curious, do you track a result in some way? A couple of things. I mean, I rely really heavily on Jupyter mm -hmm. and keep Jupyter notebooks per project mm -hmm. and have some really complicated software engineering around making it easy to describe an experiment, launch it, and graph it afterward. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are real tools that do this, but as a computer scientist, I have to make it myself because, mm -hmm. you know, where's the fun in that? <laughs> My wackiest tool mm -hmm. is I have this Google spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But it's not like any other Google spreadsheet. It's a little bit magical. When you add a line to the spreadsheet, a TPU gets kicked off, creates the experiment, starts running the experiment. The spreadsheet gets updated with the results as they come in in real time and with the updates and how the experiment is doing. And when the spreadsheet decides the experiment is done, it turns off the TPU and moves on to the next one. I love that. And this is my wackiest piece of infrastructure. I had to build it because right now there aren't any good cluster management tools built around TPUs that are public at least mm -hmm. that I know of. Mm -hmm. And so this is my own personal cluster manager and the appropriate front end ended up being a Google spreadsheet. So I like it. My whole research group now uses the darn spreadsheet. <laughs> they do call it the darn spreadsheet because uh, nobody loves it. But <laughs> all of my papers that I've written at MIT over the past two years now have been written with the spreadsheet. It's magic. You just declaratively tell it the experiment you want and the experiment gets done and it gets filled in for you. It's beautiful. That's amazing. I love that. Oh my God. It's a poor man's slurm, but right. yeah, that's okay. you know, that's okay. it works. Yeah. yeah, that's what you wanted to do, right? But all this is to say software engineering is so crucial yeah. for doing good empirical work. Mm -hmm. But also you need resources and not everybody has those either. Yeah. But once you have those, they're easier to come by than good engineering, yeah. I think. Well, thanks a bunch. This is great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N, and our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 